Why are grizzlies such good hikers? They only carry the bare necessities. You're listening to Weird Medicine with Dr. Steve on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com. I've got diphtheria crushing my esophagus. I've got Ebola virus dripping from my nose. I've got the leprosy of the heart valve exacerbating my incredible woes. I want to take my brain out and blast with the wave, an ultrasonic, echographic, and a pulsating shave. I want a magic pill for all my ailments, the health equivalent to Citizen Kane. And if I don't get it now in the tablet, I think I'm doomed and I'll have to go insane. I want a requiem for my disease, so I'm paging Dr. Steve. Dr. Steve! It's Weird Medicine, the first and still only uncensored medical show in the history of broadcast radio, now a podcast. I'm Dr. Steve, with my little pal, Lady Diagnosis. This is a show for people who would never listen to a medical show on the radio or the internet. If you've got a question you're embarrassed to take to a regular medical provider, if you can't find an answer anywhere else, give us a call at 347-766-4323. That's 347-POOHEAD. Follow us on Twitter at Weird Medicine, at Lady Diagnosis, and at Dr. Scott WM, and visit our website at drsteve.com for podcasts, medical news, and stuff you can buy. Or go to our merchandise store at cafepress.com slash weirdmedicine. Most importantly, we are not your medical providers. Take everything here with a grain of salt. Don't act on anything you hear on this show without talking over with your doctor, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, pharmacist, chiropractor, acupuncturist, yoga master, physical therapist, clinical laboratory scientist, sommelier or whatever so uh before we get started uh don't forget to check out stuff.drsteve.com for all of your amazon needs it really makes a huge difference and has everything that we talk about on this show um with the exception of the stuff that dr scott's uh, uh working on and that would all be found at simply herbals.net so for all your uh, weird medicine uh, related shopping stuff.drsteve.com and simply herbals.net. If you need earbuds, don't forget to go to tweakedaudio.com. Offer code FLUID for 33% off. The best earbuds for the uh, money and the best customer service anywhere. That's tweakedaudio.com. Offer code FLUID. And then uh, noom.drsteve.com. I'm down 22 pounds. I'm a little bit stuck right now, but I'm going to get there. And that's part of Noom is understanding when you get stuck, um, it's not the end of the world, <clears throat> and you just um, persevere and don't stress about it, and it'll happen. So uh, noom.drsteve.com. By the way, uh, in doing this Noom app, uh, I've been tracking my um, my weight, and, uh, of course, that's not the only measure you want to look at, but it is an important measure. And I noticed that it looks like a stock ticker of a stock that's constantly falling, which is good. And uh, but, you know, bouncing up and down and up and down. And uh, then you'll have these areas which we'll call in technical analysis support, which is sort of a a um, a price in the stock market where that stock will hit and then it'll kind of bounce back up again. And it has difficulty getting below that or above that. And uh, there can be resistance and then there can be support. So uh, 
when I see my um, weight start to, uh, or, you know, my 20 day moving average start to level off, I see that as an area of support. And what that's, uh, um, what that corresponds to is this concept of the set point being a point uh, that your body likes to be at as far as its weight is concerned. And um, so, it, you know, for a while there, I could eat what I wanted to not eat, and I'd stay around 188. Now I've changed my set point to around 165, and um, it likes to be there. So I'm having this period of support. But one thing that you'll find, and there are sort of technical uh, indicators that will show that you're going to drop below that support, and that's what I'm looking for. So uh, I've developed a statistical an, uh, tool based on, for those of you that do uh, some technical analysis, the Bollinger Bands. What that is is it's you take um, uh, two standard deviations above the mean and two standard deviations below the mean and plot that against this 20-day moving average, and you get these uh, bands that will shrink and expand depending on how volatile, in other words, in my case with the weight, how much my weight's going up and down and how much it's staying the same. And uh, it gives you a really nice view of where you're going with this, you know, and it's encouraging to me because I'm actually uh, staying at the bottom half of those Bollinger Bands, which is what you want when you see something that's falling. And uh, my 20-day simple moving average is continuing to decline downward. So if anybody's interested in that, let me know. I'll send you – I have a um, – you can do it in an Excel or you can do it in um, uh, Mac Pages, and I can send you that template. Okay? Just email me, uh, weirdmedicine at riotcast.com. I think still works. Or you can go to drsteve.com and just click contact. If you're interested in uh, getting premium episodes, if we ever produce any more of those, which we will, uh, or access to the archives, right now you get five of the most recent um uh, podcast for free, uh, go to premium.drsteve.com. That's premium.drsteve.com for a buck ninety nine, and use offer code FLUID, and you'll get a huge discount off of that. Basically, the first few months are free, or next two free, if you'll do that. Um, uh, but for a buck ninety nine a month going forward, uh, you get access to everything. You could just download everything and then cancel your subscriptions. Totally fine to do that. Premium.drsteve.com. I recommend that you listen to the show using the Weird Medicine app, which you can get at the um, at the uh, App Store or at Google Play. Okay. Well, let's get started. Uh, I have in the studio today Carl Kazaks. He's the director of food and beverage at Primland, and it's Primland now, not Primland, right? We, yes, sir. When we used to call, they would say, you know, uh, good afternoon, Primland, and then I noticed in the last couple of years they've stopped saying that, and now it's Primland. Primland. All right, very good. He's, uh, he's worked since 2009 when he was a part of the team that opened the lodge at Primland, which, by the way, go to primland.com. Um, it's insane. And or just that, go to Primland. And the, or go to Primland itself. And that thing mm. that's that you see is not a grain silo. That is a, a an observatory. It's really? A cra- yeah, it's the craziest place in the world. It's the most relaxing place on Earth. Number five in the U.S. for resorts, correct? Yes, highly rated resort. And it does have a telescope uh, on top of the building, essentially, where you can 
stand up there and watch the roof retract and take pictures of the sky with the telescope. Yep. <sighs> or you can just lay around and drink like my wife does. <laughs> <laughs> you I can like do that, that. too. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Carl is a certified sommelier and has worked with wine for over 20 years, having worked at a winery and a wine store in addition to numerous restaurants and resorts. So, so my first awesome. question, how do you really say correctly? Sommelier. Sommelier. Yes. Okay. And what's the derivation of that word? Well, it derives from a French word, which is uh, the art of wine service, sommelierie. Mm. Wow. Like charcuterie. Correct. Except right. it, wine. And Interesting. Wine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, very good. Because everyone um, chops that word all up. So, I, I, I mean, do you have to pass a test to become a sommelier? Well, I feel like I should ask uh, Dr. Steve whether doctors need to pass a test to become a doctor. Yes, we do. We have to pass very many. But I've heard that you can just be the wine steward at a restaurant and call yourself a sommelier. That is true. You can call yourself a sommelier without having to pass a test. However, I am a certified sommelier through the International Guild of Master Sommeliers. So there's different accrediting organizations. It's a little bit like scuba diving. There's Naui and Patty. There's different uh, organizations that uh, accredit the uh, someone who wants to be a sommelier. And so give me your, your certification again. You are certified sommelier through the International Guild of Master Sommeliers. And that... <laughs> yes. Yes. Good job, Dr. <laughs> that uh, organization has become pretty well-known through, well through a movie called SOM, S-O-M-M. I've been oh. meaning to watch that. Mm-hmm. So that's been a couple years now, but it... Uh, traces the steps of some people who are testing to be a oh, master sommelier, really? which is a couple step, two steps above where I am. So I'm certified, and there's advanced and sommelier above that, uh, but and not, then master. Not everybody that. could be one because you have to have certain taste and nose skills that not everyone has, right? Well, the way the test works, there's multiple parts. There's a written test mm-hmm. to see if you have book knowledge. And then there's that uh, blind tasting mm-hmm. test that you speak about there, lady diagnosis, to uh, <laughs> see if you can taste what's in a wine. And then there's a practical service test, which is formatted somewhat like someone taking his or her boards because you're in front of a group of people who are all master sommeliers themselves asking you a question while you're opening a bottle of champagne, doing other wine-related service tasks like decanting a bottle of wine and Instead of asking questions like, where are you from? How's the weather? What do you what do you recommend we do here? They'll ask, you know, what's your favorite subregion of Beaujolais? Or what's the aging requirements for a Chianti Classico Reserva? Oh, I was going to ask you so that. There's <laughs> 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 oh, you're so lots of information to be had. And, that, you know, it's got to be incredibly stressful. Our, uh, we have a thing called uh, clinical simulation. When uh, uh, you are in medical school, you have to do it as fourth year. And you have to go and um, see patients and do exams in front of a panel of people. Mm-hmm. And it's incredibly, uh, it, even though you know this stuff, you've been doing it for four years, you know it, you know it cold. It's uh, incredibly stressful to sit in front of people who are judging you. Especially yes. when they're experts on the what right. you're talking about also. So you know you better get it right. Like you talking to me, you can tell me anything and you know. I'll just <laughs> That's right. It say, can be nerve-wracking. Okay. Mm-hmm. But uh, as with Dr. Steve mentioned with uh, medicine, there's people that you can you can practice in advance too. It's a good thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is good. Um, let me, uh, I'm just going to jump to this sure. before we get to all the regular sommelier stuff. Um, what about the uh, brochet study? 
Yeah, are you for, are you familiar with the Brochet study? Frederick Brochet. Is where, that about the resveratrol or which one? Is no, that, this okay. was one where um, he took some. Uh, one, these were actually they, they weren't listed as as um, sommeliers. They were listed as oenologists or okay, oenologists. Yes. Oenologists. Yeah. So uh, what he did was he um, looked at sight and smell cues. So he gave them each uh, a sampling of a white wine and then a red wine and had them mark the different characteristics where there uh, notes of cherries and, and, mm-hmm. and this kind of thing. And then he grouped those, uh, those characteristics. Then he had them come back a week later and he gave them white wine that he tinted with red food coloring. Mm-hmm. And amazingly, all of the um, um, uh, characteristics of the white wine totally changed to those of the red wine so he postulated that there's that the that they're not stupid or wrong and that there's no value to it but that the visual cues actually change their perception of the taste well that's very interesting uh on a related note, sometimes people will use black wine glasses. There you go. That's so, going to mm, be my question. Exactly. So you won't know, is it a white wine or a red wine? <laughs> and say you pour a, a red wine in the glass and someone might say it's uh, the opposite. So um, it can be very humbling to try to blind taste. But I do have a anecdote I can tell you about how you can identify wine that doesn't necessarily uh, relate to the sense of smell because there's this famous uh, British wine critic named Harry Waugh who actually had a nose accident in the middle of his life. And so, of course, he was, and and that uh, led to him losing his sense of smell. Hmm. So how do you be a wine critic after that? Uh, Well, he had help from his wife, but he also was able to develop ways to identify wine beyond just the sense of smell, specifically texture in the mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just recently read an anecdote about him where he had done a uh, blind tasting with a panel of other renowned British wine critics, and that this was post his nose accent. They didn't even give him a glass of wine, but he said, go ahead, give me a glass of wine. The other critics, they couldn't figure out what it was, but he said, hmm, this has the texture of a Jabolais La Chapelle 1978. Well, that was the exact wine it was, different vintage, but he could identify it even without a sense of smell. Wow. So, Just by the chemical receptors in his tongue? He said, but wow. this te- he said texturally, this reminds me of X wine. That's incredible. So that makes, I've been thinking in my head, I've got to kind of train myself to pay attention to those things, too, and not just the flavors of limestone and sherry and the aromas that you get in the wine. Have you ever um, done a wine tasting where you just put a clothespin over your nose and and tried to... That's a good question. I've tasted wine when I've been uh, stopped up (laughs) in my nose, you know, (laughs) congested, but I've never never tried a clothespin. Hmm. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, that would be one way to sort of negate the, uh, at least part of your sense of smell. That's an interesting idea. And then uh, Mm. you can concentrate on other things. I'm doing this um, weight loss thing uh, called Noom. And one of the things that they have you do is to take food in and just put it on your tongue and let it sit there and taste it and try to experience all of the different uh, uh, aspects of it so that you're being more mindful in your eating. And I just uh, wonder if that would be an interesting experiment. We have some wine here that we're going to try later, 
And uh, maybe we could try that. It might be beneficial if we plugged our nose. <laughs> we, we may need <laughs> to. This is some of my cyst juice wine, as uh, Opie and uh, Jim Norton and Anthony, uh, uh, you know, named it many years ago. Matter of fact, I f- found the um, French word for cyst juice and named it that. So. Are there sulfites in it? No, uh, no, there's no uh, sulfites in it, and that's a question let's, uh, that I have on my list. Actually, uh, what about sulfites? Um, uh, my dad was a was a winemaker, and uh, did he use sulfites? He, his wine had uh, very heavy notes of sodium metabisulfite, sure. in and um, I, for some reason, he thought that that was a, a you know a a, a good thing to to do. So, um, what about preservatives like sulfide, sodium metabisulfite in particular, and then sulfites in general in wine? Well, metabisulfite is used in wineries to clean equipment, not just to uh, right. um, um, uh, preserve wines. And why that's important before we get into sulfites is, if you think about what how you might clean something at home, you might use bleach. But bleach has chlorine in it, and you don't want free chlorine atoms floating around a winery because it can lead to trichloroanisole, TCA, mm-hmm. which is a chemical responsible for a flaw in bottled wine called uh, corked, or wine being corked, corkiness. So TCA is what is the uh, associated chemical with a corked wine. So that's if you ever see a sommelier, let me pour this wine for you, sir, madame, at the table, a little sample first. The point of that is not, mm, do you really like it? Although, we'll, we'll, if you don't like it, we'll take it back. But the point is, is this wine correct? And there's a lot of reasons why a wine could be incorrect. It could have been stored improperly and gotten what we call cooked, yeah. and it just doesn't taste the right way. It could taste a little sherry. It could taste a little... Uh, matterized like Madeira, it could taste. Is that if you store it standing up rather uh, than on its side, or uh, it's primarily at too high of a temperature? Oh, okay. So you know, most wine is consumed within tw- most wine that's purchased is consumed within 24 hours of being purchased. So it's really once you start to get geeky and wanting to store <laughs> wine and collect wine that you have to pay attention to how it's stored. So even if you if you went into the store and bought a hundred dollar bottle of wine in August and then you kept shopping. Uh, all afternoon, and you just left that wine in your car in the parking lot. Uh, this actually happened to me once years ago. I came out, and the cork had popped up, um, you know, halfway out of the neck of the bottle sure. because the heat and pressure had caused mm. it to gone out. Uh, that actually happened to me in the cold once, too. Actually, this past winter, I just forgot about a bottle of wine I had in the car, and I came out and I got it, and it had, you know, the cork had erupted through the capsule. So uh, I should have paid better attention to it. But the point is, if you're going to be investing a lot of money into wine, you need to store it in the right way. Same if you're making wine, you want to make you be using the metabisulfite instead of the chlorine. Now, when it comes to sulfites in wine, uh, sulfur is a naturally occurring uh, element and you'll get it on grapes in any vineyard, even if there's no sulfur added. But the point about sulfide is to preserve a wine. So once the wine... When the wine's fermenting, you don't have to add sulfur because it's putting off carbon dioxide, and the carbon dioxide acts as a layer, a protective layer from the oxygen. And then once the, uh, but once right before you're bottling, once the aging is complete, um, you want to make sure that 
yeah, you know, if if there's any yeast in the bottle and any sugar, you don't want necessarily any additional uh, bottle fermentation to happen. But you also don't want um, uh, excessive volatile acidity, or, and or uh, so that's where you put in the sulfur. It's pre- it's a preservative. Mm. So there is a movement in the wine world to make what's called natural wine, and those are typically made without sulfites or sulfur added. Um, and we can talk about that more, but. Uh, you know, sulfite is to preserve a wine to prevent it from becoming like vinegar. And how does it become like vinegar? Well, um, like that bottle of wine example I mentioned where, you know, uh, the cork popped out. Well, that connection in the neck of the bottle where the cork is supposed to be sealing, it's probably not as good anymore. You get more oxygen in. The oxygen in with the wine can eventually lead right. to spoilage. If you've ever had a half-open bottle of wine on the counter and tried it two or three days later, there's a handful of wines in the world that can actually last that long and improve, but most wines, you know, sure. two or three days, it will taste like vinegar. Yeah, and vinegar is acetic acid. One of the steps between ethyl alcohol and acetic acid is this stuff called acetaldehyde. And my dad's wine also had heavy notes of that as well because he would <laughs> age his wine in these barrels that were just really porous. Right. And um, uh, I, I was an organic chemist. And I said, I got to find out what's wrong with this wine of yours. And so I took it and put it on a a gas chromatograph and found a big spike at acetaldehyde, which also, by the way, for people out there, since this is a medical show, if you have uh, flushing syndrome, uh, a lot of those folks uh, can't metabolize ethyl alcohol all the way and they'll get stuck at acetaldehyde and they'll get buildup of acetaldehyde uh, and they'll get flushing or they'll feel ill. Also, um, uh, antabuse, that medication that uh, people take to prevent themselves from drinking, will make them sick because they end up with an abundance of acetaldehyde. So, you know, it's a sort of a mid mid uh, place or, uh, you know, a, a mid metabolite of ethyl alcohol. Uh, uh, I, I want to ask you about storing wine because you, you said we need to store it properly, but we didn't say how to do that. But the one, uh, before we get to that, I got to ask you. So um, when you pour wine uh, for someone and they take the little sip and they smell it and they, you know, everyone does this. I think probably a lot of the sommeliers are like, yeah, right, like you know what you're doing. <laughs> uh, but, you know, everybody tries to look like they're – and then they go, nah, send it back. How pissed are you guys when uh-huh. people do that? And what do you do with that then? Can you turn right. around and then sell it again? Right. That's a good question. I get that question uh, with some frequency and uh, – my usual answer is, uh, well, the cooks are going to be happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, uh, if the wine is still good, we'll try to sell it. And, you know, yeah. if someone doesn't want it, we'll take it back. It has happened, Dr. Steve, before where I presented a wine to someone and asked them, you know, to judge whether it's correct. And they said it's fine. And then it just didn't smell right to me. And I kind of took it to the side and had a little taste myself. And I went back to them. I said, you know, I Let think your bottle's you corked. Wine. Let me... T- pour you this other one and see what you think and they're like oh wow that's interesting because back to the topic of corked a corked wine you can still drink it it's just not as fresh and impressive as a non-corked wine would be what it would taste like is someone just put like a wet blanket on top of it you you smell it it's not as aromatic as it should be you kind of get the sense there's something good happening there but that you know maybe you're not familiar with what corkiness is and so you don't know that that wet cardboard taste you're getting isn't supposed to be part of the wine and it's not yeah um and um you know there's that trichloroanisole i mentioned that's could be present in parts of you know 
a lot, very, very small amounts or very, very high amounts, and some people can detect it in smaller amounts than others. Wow. So, um, so are you allowed as a sommelier yeah. to taste their? That's wine a good question. They... So, uh, each restaurant has its own tradition, and I would say in ninety nine percent of the restaurants, well, ninety nine percent of the restaurants probably don't have a sommelier, but ninety five percent of them that do in the United States today, they let the host taste it first. There's a handful of extremely high-end restaurants, mainly on the coast, San Francisco, New York, that part of the process of presenting the bottle of wine is making sure mm -hmm. that the wine is correct. Right. Uh, mm. In Paris, too. So if you ordered this 1982 Chateau Bay Chevelle, uh, Dr. Steve, I'd present it to you, take it to the wine station, uh, taste it to make it sure it's correct before presenting it to you. Okay. And if it's not, then I'll go tell you this bottle's not correct. I'm going to get you a new one. Yeah, sort of like communion. Just <laughs> the wine first. There you go. <laughs> yeah, because so. if I'm paying for a good bottle of wine and it's not right, I, I, and I wouldn't know, I'd like you to taste it first. So I didn't know if that was something people did. Will you try it and make sure yeah, it's that's, that's right? A lot of times guests will ask, mm -hmm. but um, the general tradition is to ask the person who's paying for it to mm -hmm. know and that can be hard you know it can be hard even as an experienced person like me like i said or like you mentioned there in that study dr steve like someone says a white wine's a red wine and they're enologists that's mm -hmm. their job every day so um to ask someone who just has a bottle of wine once a week on friday night that, that is a lot to ask mm -hmm. of them yeah so uh, let's get back to um storing wine how should we how should how should we store it properly because we've got a lot of listeners, mm -hmm. a lot of people drink wine out there. Lady Diagnosis is notorious for certain aspects of her life that are wine-related. And, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, but I think a lot of us just buy a box wine, stick it in the fridge. That's a good way to do it, honestly, because those box wines have the collapsible bags right. inside them. So it keeps you from having wine that's uh, been exposed to air. Are there any good box wines while we're on that subject? There are good box wines. Yeah, I don't have any particular recommendations for it right now, but the quality of all wine is better than it was 30 years ago. If we go back 30 years ago to the Chiantis and the Wicker Baskets, sure, or, right. You know, a lot of wines people didn't really know much about wine in that time. Um, the Clemley Hardy Burgundy, Hardy that Burgundy, was, that's that right. was my Gallo big Hardy one. Burgundy. Gallo Hardy Burgundy. You know, some of those were good, <laughs> from what I've read. So, <laughs> but you know, wine, of course, is a big part of the tradition in uh, Europe, and it's more of a newcomer to the American tradition, really. Of course, we had Prohibition, uh, and there was some wine made in Prohibition by people like the Christian Brothers, who made brandy and still do. Um, and uh, then after Prohibition ended, the U.S. was pretty uh, hard-drinking country in terms of hard spirits. You think about that move, uh, the show Mad Men, a lot of Cosmos, oh, yeah. and then in the 80s, Manhattan's for, and, and a lot gin. of smoking at work smoking, and having right. intercourse with your secretary too back then. <laughs> While drinking. Uh, <laughs> that, yeah. Since you brought that show up, it's amazing. I, I recommend everyone watch that show because it's incredible how much things have actually changed mm -hmm. in not that long of a time. Because you look That's and you true. say that this stuff would never happen today. That's oh true. no! But anyway, but anyway. So, uh, point being is in Europe. They weren't exporting very many, much wine in like the 60s and 50s. Some certain regions were. And so, you know, as with any uh, industry that is less invested, you might let a few things go. And maybe they had dirty cellars, dirty tanks, yeah. which meant dirty wine. So to circle back around the last 30 years, 
th winemaking practices worldwide have just gotten a lot cleaner, cleaner tanks, and that means better, fresher wines. Even these box wines, there's nothing wrong with a box wine uh, whatsoever. Um, you, the main thing is just to get a wine that you enjoy and appreciate yourself. And when we talk, you know, sometimes people ask, like, well, do you have to have white wine with fish, red wine with meat? If that's what you like, then do mm -hmm. it. But if you want a big bottle of red with some salmon, go for it. If you want a Chablis or a Sauvignon Blanc with a steak, sure. go for it. I mean, so do what you want. What, how do they chintz on the box wines making it? Do they just use massively produced grapes, or do they just not ferment it as long? That's a good question. So fermentation would probably be... You can't really chintz on that per se, but okay. you know, let's take uh, the example. Of, we could start from concentrate instead of starting sure. from grapes, or right, or where the grapes are sourced. California's Central Valley, where land is cheaper, versus Napa Valley, where land is upwards of a million dollars an acre sometimes. Oh, so, God. you know, wow. what do you pay per ton? And then the physical tanks you're fermenting them in instead of being what you might think of if you're someone who's actually looked at it. It could look like an industrial hmm. fertilizer plant. I mean, it could be 500,000 gallons. It could be 30 feet across or more uh, where they make these bulk wines. But that, again, doesn't mean that it's bad. I think mm -hmm. there's a misconception that, um, you know, there's a direct linkage between price and uh, quality. Of course, sometimes you get what you pay for, but sometimes wine's overpriced too. Mm -hmm. There's that famous wine, the Two Buck Chuck, the Charles Shaw from Trader Joe's, which I think the price may have gone up. There's no Trader Joe's where I live, but uh, um, the point being is very drinkable, nice wine at, for only $2. Yeah. yeah. When my wife and I first um, uh, started going out, I would buy her really expensive wine. I'd get her these cases, and then I found out didn't really matter. I could buy her $4 Tisdale wine, and she'd be just as happy. So, of course, I did that and saved my yeah. money for other things. Mm -hmm. so. Like vacations. Yeah, that's to right. To Primland. There you go. <laughs> but for storing wine, since, Dr. Steve, that was your initial question. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, if you're going to store it for more than a couple weeks, you, the general rule of thumb is keeping it under 70 degrees. If you're going to start building a cellar and storing it for years or decades or half centuries, you want to keep it about 55 degrees and about 60 to 70 percent humidity and also no light and no, uh, you know, motion. So really the worst place to put it, it would be on top of your refrigerator in the kitchen mm -hmm. because you've got the motion of the, heat. the fridge and the heat, right, because heat rises or, you know, maybe I've even seen pictures of homes where there's a wine rack above the stove, you know, with a little oh. slot. So. Uh, you know, yeah, if you would just leave it there for two, three days, two, three weeks, no problem. Or just but, to look cool. Right, yeah. yeah if you want <laughs> to look cool, you should it. get a bottle of the Dr. Steve's uh, <laughs> An gout, empty <laughs> bottle. gout juice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, so those little wine chilling, little things that look like refrigerators, those, those are, are useful. okay. Yes, definitely those under the good. counter. Uh, yeah. There's some that, some that actually moderate humidity and some that don't. The cheaper ones tend to only be temperature, not humidity controlled. So if you wanted to spend a little more. and So why one. do you have to be concerned with humidity if it's in a bottle? Well, that's a good question. So if it's in a bottle with a cork, the humidity of the the humidity will help keep the cork moist because if you have a real dry mm -hmm. environment, the cork will dry mm. out, say we're in like a Sonoran desert situation. Um, but then there's a lot of wine nowadays with screw caps, too. Yeah, I was going to say, but also that thing that goes over the cork, Before doesn't I... that kind of preserve it from the moisture? No. A long term, no. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's the foil. Yeah. 
Gotcha. Yeah, so I screw caps are popular. We started seeing in home winemaking a move towards synthetic corks because there's been a I guess I, I mean cork is a natural product. It's tree bark. There's only so many trees. Uh, we must be getting to a point where that's maybe an issue as far as supply is concerned. Well, if I were here representing the cork industry, I would say cork is a green product because it's renewable. Yes, because you can skin it off the cork oak. And the, you're not cutting the tree down, and then mm. another how many ever years later, okay. seven to ten years later, maybe more, come back and harvest again and oh. again and again versus oh well know, okay plastics. Yep. But they don't use plastic corks as much anymore just because the seal wasn't good. But what they do sometimes is they found ways to use more of the cork than they used to, and that you may have seen agglomerated corks where it's just little pieces of cork all jammed together with some glue as opposed to just one solid hmm. uh, shot of it. And that's more well, I just figured there'd be a limited supply of cork because how many trees can you have? But I guess the earth is a big place. You can have a lot of trees. Most of the so cork know? trees are in Portugal and Spain, too. So, yeah. if again, if I were a representative of the cork industry, which I'm not, I'd say that's supporting that indigenous yeah. Uh, economy too. okay yeah. so corks are okay <laughs> all right very good um so can you t- tell us a little bit about just wine tasting how should we get better at tasting wine rather than just guzzling it like tacy does or lady diagnose oh no i don't guzzle okay so how could well uh just to take first and foremost to be taste more wine if you live in a place with a wine store that does wine tastings on mm-hmm. Saturdays, a lot of times these stores will have representatives of the wine wholesalers there pouring 6, 10, 12 wines, and you can just taste them and see what you like. Or you can create a club with your friends, people from work. Uh, don't do this at work, but, uh, you know, <laughs> we can, <laughs> well, yeah. unless you own a bar, <laughs> you, own a bar right? <laughs> you can, uh, you know, all meet on the weekend once a month and rotate houses and bring, you know, the appropriate number of bottles of wine. And you could have a theme for each month, like California whites, New Zealand whites, mm-hmm. French whites, and just start mm-hmm. to learn more. And of course, um, listening to shows like this would help too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, this show doesn't help anybody do anything. <laughs> Can I ask a so, question? Of course. Oh, okay. What's the difference between port and wine? Is it just oh, that's a aged good longer? Port is a type of fortified wine. Okay. It is made in Portugal, mm-hmm. and it's wine that has typically a grape neutral brandy added to it to make it stronger, brandy. fortified. And like many discoveries in wine, it was probably done by accident. And how it probably happened was the wine was put into a barrel to ferment, and it happened to be either topped up with some brandy accidentally or there was some brandy in the barrel. And um, the way it's done now, the fermentation is allowed to go partway, and then the brandy is added due to the fact the higher alcohol is in the wine, it kills the yeast that are causing the fermentation. Mm. And that means some of the sugars that normally would have converted Uh. to alcohol are still in wine, which is why port tends to be sweeter, too. Ah, So sweeter and stronger. That's why we serve it in smaller glasses, because you don't need as much. So port is one type of fortified wine. There are other fortified wines as well, such as Madeira. Talk a little bit then, since you brought it up, about sweet and dry and wet and those different sure. characteristics. Because just because something's sweet, it still could be dry and sweet, right? So that's a good or question. Yes. So sometimes people <laughs> uh, mistake a wine that tastes very much like ripe fruit for being sweet. 
So if you have flavors of ripe red fruits, you might think, well, this is sweet, but it could be more dry. And here I might think of something like a, a Beaujolais. Um, but sweetness you can sometimes feel. So maybe I should break my nose so I can start to feel these mm, wines better. Mm -hmm. But no, I don't really want to do that. Um, sweet wines, you'll see there's all types of sweet wines, even some Chardonnays. Uh, some very popular uh, Chardonnays have some additional sweetness to it. There's a famous Chardonnay brand that actually they had a stuck fermentation, which is where oh. they had a problem in this. I'm sure if you're a home winemaker, Dr. Steve, you know about this problem in the winemaking process for whatever reason. It's usually you're not feeding the um, the yeast properly, so they run out of food. They, right. they need more than just sugar. So... so they didn't know what to do, and they decided, well, I'm just going to mix it together with some wine that had been completely fermented, and they sold it. And it was a little bit sweeter than any hmm. – uh, this was back in the early 80s – wine had been before, and people loved it because we like sweet things. We eat candy. We drink soda. It's good. Yeah, and I, I can certainly feel sugar uh, if yes. I accidentally drink sweet tea, you know, southern sure. sweet tea, which I can't stand mm – -hmm. Um, I can I can feel it on my mouth. It feels sort of round and I don't know yes. gooey sort of. Gooey, yeah. There's a weight to it, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. So I could imagine uh, drinking a dry white wine that might have, you know, apricot flavors or whatever, and uh, think and mistaking that for being sweet. But when we say sweet in wine, we're really talking about sugar, or am I? We should be. Okay. Yes. So and what dry means is not sweet. So there's a dry, no what we call residual sugar. That's sugar. That's that, where the yeast has eaten everything and then dropped to correct. the bottom and left no sugar behind. Correct. And since you mentioned that, just for the listeners out there, if you're not sure what fermentation is, what fermentation is, alcoholic fermentation is you take sugar and yeast and it produces alcohol and carbon dioxide. So that's why that carbon dioxide is produced. And that's actually how bottle fermented carbonation such as is found in champagne produces bubbles so what champagne is is a still wine that's been bottled and then you add a little bit of yeast and then you add a little bit of this liqueur de tirage a sugar solution to cause in a bottle of wine that's still fermentation again right now that's pretty uh that was invented supposedly by the monk dom perignon mm. oh. and um very hand intensive labor intensive so you can make carbonated wine in other methods. There's a Charmant process where you have a big tank and you do the exact same thing just in a big tank and then you bottle it. Or you can actually just make a still wine and then pump CO2 into it like you would for like beer, beer makers beer, do. beer or yeah. soda. Um, so. Yeah, that's interesting. So um, I, I tried making sparkling wine once and I made an apple wine and then we had to add sugar and a little bit of yeast to it we made a solution and dumped it in you know you have to decork it and then Correct. add that and then put the new cork on that you can then use the wire to hold it down because the pressure of the fermentation will knock the uh, oh, regular is that what the wire's out. for yeah yes. okay it'll knock a regular cork out of there and you'll have wine all over every place and um now there are there's one process where they turn the uh neck of the bottle up and then they'll freeze it yes. and then pop that. That's disgorgement. So, so tell us yes, about so that. That's so. a good question. So the way you described it, one cork and then another. In champagne, they do a cork. Actually, they use crown caps. So after they add the yeast and the sugar, 
they'll put another crown cap on that's just like a bottle cap and then they go through a step of called remuage where this is a bottle that's laid on its side in racks and there's someone that goes through there he's probably or she doing it right now as we speak going through these caves in champagne giving these a quarter turn and making them move slightly downwards and over the course of uh several years it goes from about horizontal to about uh you know diagonal and that means what that does is it takes all the yeast that have been added to the bottle to create the second fermentation towards the neck because they want to pop out that yeast that had been put in the bottle to create the secondary fermentation out of the bottle before it hits the market and they try to sell it for $500 a bottle or $50 yeah, a so bottle. Yeah, so you don't have the sediment from Correct. the secondary fermentation. Right. So, and, then they t- that's, and then when they're taking the sediment out from the secondary fermentation, that's called disgorgement. So they, what they do then is they actually put the neck of the bottle through this uh, freezing solution. It's some sort of chemical that's not water, so it can get below 32 degrees. And you freeze the neck of the bottle, and that makes all the, the sediment from the secondary, secondary fermentation hardened so when you pop it out and it does pop out because there's there's carbon dioxide in there you just eject it out top it up with a little more wine and uh then you put the cage and the uh the mushroom cap in there it's crazy Hmm. wow that's a lot (laughs) of work i figured that out the first time they must have had a lot of time on their hands (laughs) (laughs) i've got we have some questions from uh we've only got about 15 minutes left and we want to try this wine too uh, do you mind answering some questions from our listeners? I'd be glad to. Okay. I have no idea what these are, so <laughs> let's see here. Dr. Steve, it's Craig calling from Scottsdale, and I have a question for you about wine. It has to do with red wine and goes back to the mid-'90s when there was an article written about the French paradox, how the French people ate all the highly saturated food, yet they had a very minimal amount of uh, heart disease and uh, they attributed to the the drinking of red wine and they really didn't take much else into consideration yeah it's a long question but that's so the french paradox do you have anything to say about that i've got a couple of uh, studies that i happen to pull to talk about that well my first response would be is I was lucky enough to go to France last year in April for about a week, and I actually lost weight. So I experienced the French paradox myself. But what I realized is the French are very good at dining. The Americans are very good at eating. So I would go to lunch, and they would make time out of their day to sit down and talk to you for an hour and a half at lunch. But then at 4.30, I was driving driving a lot. You couldn't just stop by a 7-Eleven and get a big gulp. They don't have as many gas stations, period. And then where they do, they stop and have a cup of coffee. They don't have just food available everywhere. One night I was driving. uh, They don't have pretzel cheese dogs. (laughs) You know, I wanted to... uh, I wanted to find a place to eat. It was just harder to find a place to eat. Uh, So... they're, I, but they're good at dining. I can attest to that as yeah. well. My wife. So and they I, enjoy the dining. Yes. Whole, the whole thing. We're in Sitges, España, which is near Barcelona, and uh, we were starving. And it was nine o'clock, and none of the restaurants were open yet because they all open. <laughs> and we we were banging on the door. Will you please feed us now? And uh, we felt like the old folks going to a dang uh you know early bird special or something <laughs> because you know finally they're like yeah we'll feed you it's nine thirty at night <laughs> yeah, at night yeah oh, wow yeah it was very interesting i realized 
when I was there that they really have the whole lifestyle thing figured out because, you know, they they rest during the day and then they work, you know, till later and then they go out and eat. And then the clubs, even on a weeknight, will open up at one in the morning. Wow. And, uh, you know, and, and I was sitting at a bar and saw the trash guys coming at midnight. It's genius. Why would you do that in the heat of the day? Mm-hmm. Right. Do right. it. Do it at yeah. midnight. And then I got home. I said, we need to go on the European model. And I looked up some statistics and found out that Spain in particular uh, at that time had the lowest productivity of any civilized country. So, you <laughs> well, know, you trade that. that. There you go. <laughs> but they're happy. They're happy. <laughs> um, there's a, a good. St- yes. And, and that that's not nothing. No. You know, that's, that's very important. Um, I have a study from the European, while wow, surprise, uh, Journal of Clinical Nutrition, the effect of red wine and red grape extract on blood lipids, home- uh, hemostatic factors, and other risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And I'm just going to read the conclusion because we don't have time to go through the whole study. But it says moderate red wine consumption for four weeks is associated with desirable changes in HDLC, which is your good cholesterol. So it's raising your good cholesterol. And fibrinogen, which is, um, you know, it's, a, it's involved in clotting. You don't want too much of that. Compared with drinking water with or without red grape extract, because we've all heard that, well, it's just the red grape extract that uh, makes the difference, the, or the resveratrol. Uh, the impact on, of wine on the measured cardiovascular risk factors thus seems primarily explained by an alcohol effect. Hmm. <laughs> Which is Thank good, you, Dr. Steve. Good news. For, <laughs> but, yeah, it's very interesting. And then there's another one that showed that uh, when they – so now that this is science – Dealcoholized red wine containing known amounts of resveratrol suppresses atherosclerosis, in other words, clogs in the heart, in hypercholesterolemic rabbits without affecting plasma lipid levels. Now, that's an interesting finding because uh, uh, they took the alcohol out and found that the resveratrol extract uh, actually decreased the amount of uh, deposits of plaque on, uh, now these are ra- in rabbits, so we've got to see this mm-hmm. in humans, uh, without actually changing their lipid levels. So we, we've all known for some time that it's not just lipid levels that cause cardiovascular risk because if you take a statin drug and reduce someone's bad cholesterol by a certain amount, you'll reduce, reduce their risk of heart attack and stroke by a certain amount. If you reduce their uh, cholesterol, their LDL cholesterol specifically, with other medications doesn't change the outcome the way that statins do. So it can't just be cholesterol alone. There's something else going on. It could be anti-inflammatory. It could be anti-platelet. We don't know. Still don't know, but it's very interesting. So moderate amount of wine appears to be good for you. I've always counseled yes, my patients when they that's have true. high cholesterol and they ask me what can I can do about my heart attack uh, risk, uh, increasing your exercise, stopping smoking, getting your blood sugars under control, getting your blood uh, pressure under control, and uh, you know drinking four ounces of red wine a day. If you're a teetotaler, four ounces of red grape juice might do as well. Increasing soluble fiber like oatmeal or uh, oat bran, that kind of thing. Uh, methyl cellulose, a.k.a. Uh-oh. Citrusel. Oh, where is my drop? I changed this <laughs> thing. Oh, there it is. Citrusel. 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 
No, no, no. Okay, Dr. Steve. So, uh, and, and those kind of things, those lifestyle management things, but wine is certainly a part of that. So, okay. Now I, now I know why you've got the Citrusel bumper sticker in your <laughs> car out there. <laughs> well, it, when we first started this show back in 2005, we probably, we mentioned testosterone and Citrusel every single show oh, okay. for, because it was, people were worried about- <laughs> That's okay. their biggest problems. About their testicular function, and they were worried about their bowel movements. So. Mm. All right, let's see here. Let's try another question from the audience. Hey, Dr. Steve, uh, this is for the Somalia show. Wanted to know uh, what his thoughts are on the alcohol content in red wine. It seems that it keeps going up, and the bigger and bigger reds are just pretty much tasting more boozy than actual, you know, grapes. What do you think about that? Is he, is he right about that? I've not noticed this. That He is right. There's definitely been a trend in the last 20 years to more extraction and um, bigger styled wines. And how that comes about is uh, the higher alcohol is by letting a grape stay on the long, vine longer to get more ripe flavors, it also ends up getting more sugar that uh, could be converted into alcohol. Mm. There's other factors at play, too, such as acid levels in the grape um, typically go down as the grape matures. And really, the best thing for wine is to be in balance. You can always add acid to wine during the winemaking process. That's completely legitimate. Uh, some parts of the world historically have had to add sugar to the uh, pressed grape juice to help bring more alcohol to the wine, say it was a cold vintage or a northern location. But there's actually been a, a counter trend away from the uh, bigger, boozier wines, those 16% Cabernets and Zinfandels, to uh, more moderately styled 125 to 13% uh, wines. And, um, you know, if you talk to someone at your local wine store, they should be able to help you uh, find that out. But there are other wines out there you can find that would be counterexamples. Okay. Very interesting. Um, I'm going to play you something uh, going way back uh, with, in the Opie and Anthony days. Okay, let's do it. Um, I, one of the things that I did, and if, <laughs> if you want to find this on um, the Internet, you can just go to YouTube and put in Suck My Pino. It's S-U-K-M-A-I-P-I-N-O-T. And this uh, this video will come up, and we've only got a couple of minutes. I'm just going to play their reaction to me sending them uh, homemade wine. <laughs> Dr. Mengele, here's some wine. <laughs> he, he listens, Jimmy. Yeah, good. Stop sending people fucking alcohol that you stepped on your own awful corn-ridden feet. <laughs> He probably, so, oh wait. probably connect. He, he probably collects like cyst juice. <laughs> oh shit! Nobody has enough. He lets it ferment. Lance wine. Yeah. Right. When come in. <laughs> okay, so you get you get the picture. Yeah, it's funny. So anyway, I have some wine that I made at that time, and this is actually um, uh, I, I named it cyst juice after them because this was after the suck my pino. I'm gonna let you Aww. and Lady Diagnosis try it. This has been stored on its side, but the cork was a Thank two-year you. cork, and that is, what, 10 years old. Yes. I think that was 2008. 2009. So. 2009. Right. So, yeah, right at 10 years. So it's really eight years past where it should have been. I just kept it as a memento. I, had, I have several others, but all of those I only had one bottle. This one I had two. And... Uh, this was a meritage. What in the heck is a meritage? I, I, I called it meritage for years, and then I was corrected by somebody. It is a blend of different 
typically okay. red wine grapes specifically, usually Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot, the major uh, Bordeaux varieties. This is an aromatic wine. I can mm-hmm. sm- it smells very grapey, doesn't it? I can smell it? it from here. Right, you don't yeah. have to. Uh, so I think it's it's not corked because a corked wine, you wouldn't be able to smell it as aromatic. Interesting. There's a uh, lot of nuances on the nose. You get that Concord grape quality. Oh, there we go. Turn down the lights. <laughs> can I get a straw? <laughs> so they are now, uh, sommelier Carl has uh, got his nose in the glass, and he's looking intently. Oh, now he's tasting it. Oh, here we go. <laughs> the nose is better than the palate. There you go. So the nose, you get some, uh, a little bit mixture of the grapiness, red mm-hmm. fruits, a little bit of blue fruits, mainly red fruits, and, and just a hint of... Uh, little bit of cardboard box on the nose. (laughs) Do you get that diagnosis? (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. And then you taste it and and then it's not totally in balance. We get a lot of sweetness. Yeah. So it didn't improve with age. Uh, But it's not a failed wine. It's just uh, Well, I'm going to take that as a win. (laughs) It's not a failed wine. You hear that? You assholes. I would drink it, Dr. Steve. Really? Perfect, perfectly really? made cyst wine. Mm-hmm. There you go. Thank you very much. Must be from the good cysts. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So uh, let's see. We've got a couple other questions. Oh, yeah, this one might be good. Let's see. Hey, Dr. Steve. This is Ken from Aiken, South Carolina. I have a question for the episode coming up with your Master Somnier. Um, ask him how he feels about studies that have shown that Master Somnier... Wait, nobody knows how to pronounce that word, do I they? I told you, it's really yeah, a tough one. The other guy called you a Somalian. He <laughs> could not tell the difference between 10 buck chuck and $50 wines, oh. or wines that have sat out for a couple of days after the cork's been pulled. I'd like to get his uh, opinion on that. Thanks. Fluid. <laughs> We kind of hit this already, but we've got two minutes. It wouldn't hurt to... Uh... So first of all, I'm actually not a master sommelier. The master sommeliers out there would certainly want that to be known. And, uh, you know, anyone can be uh, fooled. Even Tom Brady throws an interception and LeBron James sure. doesn't make every shot. So, But with study, you can definitely learn more about wine. Yes, anyone can be fooled. The black glasses, the study that Dr. Steve mentioned. But mm-hmm. if you spend day after day <laughs> training your nose, training your palate, learning about things, I can promise you, you will get better at wine identification and wine appreciation. Yeah, absolutely. And in the end, it, for us, um, it's just find things that you like. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's yeah. it. So we've had... That uh, doesn't give you a headache. Carl Kazax from uh, 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 Primland, which is in Meadows of Dan, Virginia. We'll take the last minute to plug plug the place and thank you so much for coming all the way down here to talk to us about wine and um, uh, it is uh, the number five resort in the United States number one in the southeast and it's ranked internationally as well right? Yes it's a very very uh, nice resort very high end we get lots of ratings uh, high ratings but more important to us than that is just the quality of the people that are there both the employees our team there uh the guests we have there such as dr steve and uh, our owners it's really it's meant to be a luxury retreat in a natural setting it's on many thousands of acres you can hunt golf fish or just do nothing at all and sit back and drink some wine ride atvs ride atvs exactly sit at the uh 
at the fire pub. pit. Fire pit. Oh, oh, at the fire pit. Yeah, yeah Lady Diagnosis sure. has been there, and uh, we love to go there. We need to make reservations for uh, um, for Memorial Day if there are any left. Mm-hmm. But I can attest that the staff is second to none. They feel like family. You know, we walk into the saloon where they've got a saloon. There's uh, they'll have um, Stevie. Stevie Barr playing uh, bluegrass, and you know the the woman that runs the place, Deborah, just comes and hugs us, and Aww. we just feel you know it's That's just nice. so nice. Yeah, it's so nice. It's such a great place. We're completely out of time. Thank you so much for coming, Carl Kazax from Primland. You can find um, the Primland Resort at primland.com in Meadows of Dan, Virginia. Thanks always go to uh, Lady Diagnosis. We can't forget. Rob Sprantz, Bob Kelly, Greg Hughes, Anthony Cumia, Jim Norton, Travis Tepp, Lewis Johnson, Paul Ofcharski, Eric Nagel, Roland Campos, Sam Roberts, Pat Duffy, Dennis Falcone, Ron Bennington, and Fez Watley, whose early support of the show has never gone unappreciated by us. Listen to our SiriusXM show on the Faction Talk channel, SiriusXM channel 103, Saturdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, Sundays at 5 p.m. Eastern, on demand, and other time at Jim McClure's pleasure. Many thanks to our listeners whose voicemail and topic ideas make this job very easy. Go to our website at drsteve.com for schedules and podcasts and other crap. Until next time, check your stupid nuts for lumps, quit smoking, get off your asses, and get some exercise. We'll see you in one week for the next edition of Weird Medicine.